Texas versus the United States. Bring it. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at quorumreport.com. With me, as always, as reliable as they come, ace reporter at the Houston Chronicle, Jeremy Wallace. Hello, sir. Certainly more reliable than the starting pitching of the Houston oh, Astros. Did you really have to go there? Yes, I have. I've had a thing uh, with was, uh, Steve Dial at the Fox affiliate in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth. Cannot stop giving me grief about it. He's a big Atlanta guy. Uh, we appeared together on Fox 7 in Austin uh, for, a, for a television taping today. And we're supposed to be talking about the news, and he's wearing his Atlanta Braves hat. Oh. Whatever, Steve. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we'll be back. We'll be back next year. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna dwell on it. I want to get into the news. You know what was going on this week, Jeremy? Everything. Uh, Texas taking on the United States. Texas taking on the world, and in a lot of ways, uh, getting not just national but world attention. A friend of mine who was traveling in Amsterdam this week sent me a picture. He was in his hotel room, and looking at the television, saw the news report about the Texas abortion law at the United States Supreme Court. This was the top story. Uh, all around the world for just a little while. And there's so many things that are going on where Texas is adversarial with this administration, right? No surprise. The Abbott administration versus the Biden administration. And we were talking about this for months ad nauseum during the legislative session and leading up until it took effect on September 1st, Senate Bill 8. Have you noticed this in your talks with just average folks that SB 8, if you say the name of that bill, Average people know what you're talking about. Yeah. I, I have seen it a lot, and that's not the norm at all. In fact, later, in because we had uh, different legislative sessions, in other legislative sessions, the special sessions, all the bills get renamed and renumbered. You know, it's different. An SB-8 in a different session is, is a different bill. So there was a different SB-8, which had to do with federal funding in one of the special sessions. So I was talking about that, and immediately somebody got angry. And I said, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I mean, you can be mad about however they're spending the money, but that's not what we're talking about. Senate Bill 8, which is the bill that bans abortion in Texas at six weeks and enforces it through civil actions, through lawsuits, brought to you by trial lawyer Brian Hughes. It was in front of the United States Supreme Court. And the questions from even the conservative justices were fascinating, Jeremy. This yeah. uh, argument that happened on Monday had more to do with jurisdictional issues. Now, can the, can the Biden administration even intervene in this case. That's one of the things that they're talking about. It was quite a scene in Washington. Brian Hughes, who I mentioned, the senator who carried this in the Texas Senate, was there to say he is hoping and praying that this thing is upheld. And Texas, in passing the heartbeat law and increasing funding for the Alternatives to Abortion Act, has shown that we can save the unborn baby's life while we love and respect and support the mother. We can do both. And so we pray, we trust, we believe that our Supreme Court will give equal justice under law and uphold the Texas Heartbeat Act. There is no argument from conservatives on this, Jeremy, that doesn't include the word heartbeat, right? This is very emotional, uh, an, an emotional debate, although the science of that isn't quite exactly what it has been portrayed to be, right? When you're talking about six weeks, uh, most, uh, you know, at that point, most uh, pregnancies, there, there is no technical heartbeat yet uh, you may hear a sound uh, you know from the ultrasound the sonogram uh, this is what Attorney General Merrick Garland said about a month ago when the Justice Department took Texas to court over this trying to get it to the Supreme Court the act is clearly unconstitutional 
under long-standing Supreme Court precedent. Those precedents hold, in the words of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, that, quote, regardless of whether exceptions are made for particular circumstances, a state may not prohibit any woman from making the ultimate decision to terminate her pregnancy before viability. Texas does not dispute that its statute violates Supreme Court precedent. Instead, the statute includes an unprecedented scheme to, in the Chief Justice's words, quote, insulate the state from responsibility. Now keep in mind, Jeremy, that the law doesn't just say that private individuals are the ones responsible for enforcement of the six-week ban. It also, as you have pointed out in your reporting, says the state is not allowed to enforce the law, right? And yeah. that's what the Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice John Roberts was talking about when he said this is basically trying to wall off the state of Texas from having to have any responsibility in federal court if this thing gets challenged. And what we had talked about early on is the idea that you would probably have to see some abortion providers, some doctors and people who helped women seek abortions, they would have to be sued and suffer some damages first before the Supreme Court could step in on this thing. But don't you think it's interesting that, and this is where people start to say, wow, it might be that there is gambling in this establishment and the Supreme Court actually is a political body, right? Yeah. It's not just, it, it's not uh, apolitical the way some people would like to think. They, uh, at the Supreme Court on September 1st, said they would not step in. They let the law take effect. And then all of a sudden there's this quick action to have these arguments uh, in Washington. Yeah, it's funny because they, they almost end up with, you know, that legal discussion about, you know, allowing people to sue uh, become yeah, I think probably grabbed a few of them in a different way, and you, you, you hear it in the, the the questioning from the you know the the justices. It's like it's not just about abortion at this point; it's also about a legal precedent of how we're going to enforce it. You know, like you mentioned, like you know, I remember early on Senator Brian Hughes telling me like you know it was you know this bill was you know designed to make it to where you couldn't sue the state of Texas <laughs> mm -hmm. you know to rent right the, they were just saying that out loud yeah they wanted to make this sure wasn't secret. that the you know pro choice you know world out there could not sue them sue the state of Texas to stop the law and you can see the difficulty and complications that's created when even justices on the Supreme Court are going, wait, wait, can we do this? <laughs> right. And not just the liberal justices. Um, there were a lot of protesters outside the courthouse, folks on both sides of the argument, including this guy who was specifically praying for one of the justices on the Supreme Court. We pray for Justice Kavanaugh, that you would strengthen him, that you would steal his heart that you would move mightily and powerfully within his life, that you would direct him. Father, so many across the nation feel the single most critical vote in the Texas case. So you hear there from conservative activists, they think Justice Kavanaugh is the key vote in the Texas case. So what did Justice Kavanaugh say during the hearing. He is certainly no liberal. Remember a time when all the liberals were really worried that Kavanaugh was going to be on the court. Um, he had this rather terse exchange with the Texas Solicitor General. That's the person who represented basically the state's lawyer before the Supreme Court. They worked for the Attorney General's office. Kavanaugh wanted to know what would happen if a state used the same technique, for example, let, let, let's say California, 
decided they wanted to let anybody sue over the sale of assault rifles. Well, how would that go down? Everyone who sells an AR-15 is liable for a million dollars to any citizen. Uh, Would that kind of law be exempt from uh, pre-enforcement review in federal court? My answer is on whether or not the whether or not federal court review is available does not turn on the nature of the right. So we can put in religious liberty. So we can assume that this will be across the board uh, equally applicable to all constitutional rights. Yes, but I'd add one more point, Your Honor. Even that, when, and you've also said the amount of the penalty doesn't matter. Million dollars per sale. You know, anyone a state passes a law. Anyone who declines to provide a good or service for use in a same-sex marriage, million dollars sued by anyone in the state, that, that's exempt from pre-enforcement review? Again, Your Honor, what we'd have to have, for example, in is that specifically... that a yes, sir? Yes, I'm sorry, Your Honor. Yes, That's a yes. The answer is yes. For any of those rights that are either spelled out in the Constitution or have been read into the Constitution by Supreme Courts in the past, a Supreme Court president, which is what we're talking about with abortion, right? And, and it, this gets really sticky really quick. But So, for example, with the uh, gun rights that uh, Kavanaugh is talking about, there is a specific right in the Bill of Rights that speaks to uh, the right to bear arms, right? Now, the word abortion is nowhere in the Constitution. It is that in the Roe versus Wade decision, it has been read into the Constitution by the Supreme Court that you have a right to it. And there's a question about viability. It may end up, Jeremy, and what, what if this is the long-term effect or where this is all going is that the Texas law could get poured out by the court. They may say, look, you can't do it this way. That just not, this isn't cool. Um, but at the same time, this is a very conservative Supreme court and they have another case in front of them coming up next month that speaks to the kind of case we've all always heard about and understood when it comes to abortion, which is about viability. Mississippi has the law that would ban abortions at 15 weeks. And that seems to be more straightforward. Yeah, exactly. And you can hear it in like, you know, listening to Kavanaugh's questioning, you can see the concern. It's like, you know, Texas, you know, Republicans think they built the better mousetrap. But Mm -hmm. what happens when California, New York and Illinois get to build the same mousetrap to shut down things that they don't want? You know, it's like, you know, you can see Kavanaugh is kind of wrestling with that, you know, that possibility. Like he said, you know, he said it in the questioning about gun rights, but it doesn't stop there. You know, it's like, you know, you know, let's not, you know, let's say they go after like, you know, climate change issues, you know, and, yeah. and, you know, they could do all kinds of creative things, you know, in those states. Uh, and yeah, and, and that's a lot of lost revenue potentially for whatever company, corporation, whatever is doing business in those areas, depending on what the, the more liberal states want to go for. So does the Supreme Court, by allowing this you know, law to go into effect, create basically a new mechanism in which, you know, the, you know, life in California versus Texas is even more extreme than we think of it even as, you know, today. Yeah. I think it's fair to say Justice Kavanaugh did not sound happy with the state of Texas on that, yeah. on that argument. I mean, he, he was very, not just skeptical. He didn't sound happy with it. Right? I don't think he, he almost, wants he... to be drawn into this type of discussion. I think he must mm-hmm. know, look, he's a very precedent oriented kind of guy from, you know, right. if you remember his you know confirmation hearings and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Uh, and so like he is certainly worried about opening the door to something that's going to really suck later. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and suck for uh, all sides potentially. Yeah. And, and that's the way he laid it out in his, in his argument and in, in his question, he didn't just say, well, what about for things that are important to conservatives? He also included gay marriage in there. He was talking yeah. about a variety of things. Very interesting. Also in court this 
week. The Mexican-American Legislative Caucus is challenging the redistricting maps that were passed uh, by the legislature in one of our previous uh, legislative sessions this year. The MALC chairman, Rafael Anchia, said in a news release, Texas politicians undermined representative democracy to remain in power for the next decade at the expense of Texas voters. The state suit that we're talking about here, Jeremy, says that on its face, the the house map, the Texas house map, um, violates the Texas Constitution by breaking up a part of Texas that we will talk about a little bit more here, Cameron County, which is in South Texas. We're talking Brownsville when we talk about that. Basically, this is a short version of it. I'm not a lawyer, but it's a pretty straightforward rule. The uh, county line rule in the Texas Constitution says, and this is an effort to keep communities of interest whole as much as possible, and this is only for Texas House seats. The counties have to be kept as whole as possible when they draw the districts for the Texas House members. It's not true for Congress. It's not true for the state Senate. It's not true for the State Board of Education. So that's why those are the districts that can look all sorts of different ways. When you look at the Texas House seats, they're pretty compact. And it's basically what, you know, here's a here's a, a, a district that is for one or two counties or maybe three counties. Or here's one that's wholly contained in a big county like Harris County, and they have a bunch of uh, house districts within that county. Um, this is fascinating uh, to me because the night that the change was made during the redistricting debate, there is a representative from further north uh, of the valley, uh, J.M. Lozano, a Republican, who was carrying the amendment to break up Cameron County into some different districts that Republicans are trying to make it more competitive down in the valley for for potentially for a Republican. They're, they're looking at the numbers that President Trump helped to create in the Valley, which I'm skeptical are going to be replicated in future election cycles. Uh, but J.M. Lozano was asked by some Democrats, including some from the Valley, hey, where'd you get this amendment from? You know, Where did this idea come from to break up Cameron County? Lozano did not have an idea uh, on that, he, at least not one that he wanted to offer. <laughs> he, he wasn't straightforward about where that amendment came from. It was my reporting at the time that the governor's office became involved in that and was calling Republican members on their cell phones on the floor of the Texas House at the time to try to push this forward. That's going to be fascinating to watch how that gets argued in court. And also talking about elections, once again, Texas versus the United States. The Department of Justice has sued Texas just yesterday in San Antonio over portions of the new election law. I was asked, why don't they just sue over the whole thing? As you know, Jeremy, and have reported, you you were the one, while I was staying up all night with them on redistricting, you were the one who sat in the Texas Senate till 6 a.m. earlier in the year while they were passing the uh, elections bill as Brian Hughes was uh, defending it for hours and hours and hours. They had to pass it through the Senate a couple of times, right, to get this yep. to get this quote right uh, you know, in the end. Um, this from CNN, the Justice Department lawsuit says that the law illegally restricts voters' rights by requiring rejection of mail ballots for immaterial errors and omissions. It also harms the rights of voters with limited English proficiency, military members deployed away from home and voters overseas. That from the Justice Department's filing. Um, I think if you look at the scope of this law, it's so big, Jeremy, that there are actually some things, and some Democrats have said privately, some things are in there are just fine, yeah. right? There are things in there like uh, if you move from one county to the next, you can update your voter registration online where you couldn't do that before. That's 
in the estimation of some people, that's halfway to online voter registration because yep. that's the main way people use that. Uh, there are some other things that Democrats aren't necessarily that angry about. There were uh, vicious arguments about some things that got taken out of the law. Yep. Right? I mean, this is the bill. Let's not forget. Democrats went to Washington over. Right? They, they broke quorum at the end of the regular session, and they went to a church in East Austin. That had the drama, but um, more of the convenience <laughs> that I would like as far as a, a quorum break. Uh, and then they went to Washington for, I think, about six weeks, you know, trying to hold up this law. Eventually it was passed. I think the needle may have been moved a little bit in Washington. It seems like the Democrats are more on the same page in Washington about what they'd like to pass uh, for elections laws, although they still haven't gotten there. Does it occur to you, Jeremy, that for all these folks who maybe want to be in Washington as congressmen, maybe maybe a state house member who wants to run for Congress, um, that uh, that, you know, really they have more of an impact here because in Congress they talk about a lot of things. They almost never do anything. All the things that we're talking about that are impacting people's lives directly are happening in state government. Right. So, so, so here you have the here you have the Justice Department and uh, the state of Texas at war over the law passed by the legislature on abortion and now on this law dealing with our elections in Texas going forward. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, you know, going to Congress, especially if you're a new member of Congress, it's like you're not going to be doing a whole lot for the next, say, six years or so. But in the Texas legislature, uh, you know, you can you can start making a mark really early on. You know, you think of some of those Democrats who led the break, you know, out to D.C. A lot of those were freshman members of, of the mm -hmm. Texas House, These are like newbies who were just like, nope, we're not doing this. We're out of here. And it's like to have that kind of influence and power in your first year in the Texas legislature, unheard of in the United States Congress. You know, yeah. I, 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 there was a member of Congress who used to tell me, oh, yeah, you get elected to Congress and you know, nice. Now you can go, you know, try to you know, raise money for the next few years and then we'll mm -hmm. see you in 10 years and see how you're doing. And then we'll right. let you play with the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and it was a freshman member on the Republican side who carried the abortion bill in the Texas House. It was uh, Shelby Slauson. So having yep. a huge impact there. She was also at the Supreme Court this week on the question of challenging this election law. It seems to be the thing that is that continues to be the organizing principle for the supporters of former President Trump. Right. I mean, that those folks are outraged over elections that they that they won. Yeah. Right. I mean, in in Texas, let's not forget, President Trump carried the state by six points and Republicans did very well down ballot. I mean, they held what they had. Right. State legislatures all over the country. There was a big push by Democrats to you know take some of those, um, you know, those uh, state legislatures back. And yeah. it didn't happen. In a single state, uh, Republicans did well in congressional races, narrowing the margin in the U.S. House. Um, they did well in uh, in their state house races, etc. Uh, but on this issue of the elections laws, you have Governor Abbott trying to talk tough here. He was the one who said, "Bring it." You know, they, they want to sue us over abortion. Bring it. They want to sue us over elections. Bring it. To his benefit politically, um, I think this is a pretty well-timed lawsuit uh, because he continues to want to try to reach out to President Trump's supporters when uh, they're not getting exactly what they want from the Abbott administration at this moment. Yeah, and you look at, like, is there anything that's more comfortable for Abbott than to talk about 
legal issues. And, you know, remember he was the attorney general of Texas who was constantly suing Barack Obama uh, when he was president. Uh, you know, here's a guy who, you know, grew up around the judiciary. He's been a judge himself, an attorney. So this is where, this is his comfortable playing field where politics turns, you know, more into a legal fight with the federal government. Greg Abbott loves right. this. This is his, his territory. He feels like he's like on home field advantage when he's, mm -hmm. you know, finally getting to talk about something that, you know, deals with judges and attorneys and, you know, all the uh, the great legalistic Latin terms. <laughs> yes. Going into the courtroom, he was talking in that Breitbart interview that we played uh, part of on the show last week. He was talking about a big showdown between Texas and the federal government in court, right? That, that's where he wants to, to have the battle. We mentioned redistricting, and because of redistricting, and this always happens every cycle, it's when you see a huge number of retirements from the legislature. Um, and there's there are a few reasons for that. One is sometimes you will have a district that is drawn where the, per, the person who is currently uh, holding that seat will look at the math, they look at the new community that they might represent, and they say, well, I would have to raise too much money. I don't know the people in these neighborhoods that are now in my district, and I'm going to step aside. It doesn't make sense. That happens. Um, and then there's other times that what, what happens is um, a member of the legislature will want to work really hard to get through the redistricting cycle and have input on what the map looks like so that they can maybe install their heir apparent, right? That happens. Or you know, somebody that they would like to see in that seat set it up such that it that they're putting their stamp on what's going to happen in the future because these are the districts for the next decade one of the uh, retirements that is more than notable it's a huge shift in south texas which we were talking about is in cameron county brownsville and over to harlingen uh, where senator eddie lucio has been in the legislature for decades and just this week he said he was stepping aside uh, he's retiring it had been thought for a long time that he was setting the stage for his son, who is a state representative, who also just happens to have the same name, Eddie Lucio III. People thought he was setting this up such that his son would then run for the Senate seat. But that doesn't, that's not happening. As far as I can tell, um, Eddie Lucio III, the state representative, earlier in the year said he's retiring. He's not coming back. It's my understanding that because he has a lot of other businesses uh, right now, he's a, he's a lawyer by trade and by training, but you know how he's making his money? Orange Theory uh, gyms, and uh, he owns some pizza places up in Collin County. I, it, just from a business standpoint, how could you do better than a gym and a pizza place? <laughs> they create they create supply and demand for each other, right? So, so he has a couple of other businesses. I guess he's got a spa he's going to open in Austin and a whole bunch of other things. And if you think about the kind of businesses that uh, that Representative uh, Lucio is running. They were impacted by pandemic restrictions over the last year, right? So there's probably some, uh, I mean, I think his businesses are doing well, but there's probably some financial writing of the ship that needs to happen with all that sort of stuff. Wouldn't it be interesting if you had this sort of a legacy and dynasty thing that was sort of being set up and it just didn't happen or didn't, didn't continue because the son made the decision to get out of this rather than the father leaving it to him? It could be that the son sort of led the father out of the business of politics. If, if his son's not going to take it over, then, you know, the Senator may have just said, well, then why am I still doing this? Yeah. Well, and it, yeah. And, and it's the, the, you know, think of the timing of it too. It's like the Texas Senate is just like going, 
you know, through some change right now. Obviously, you know, Lucio, he's retiring. Uh, earlier, we had Shane Nelson, uh, the Republican from mm-hmm. you know, Flower Mound, announced Another that he was going member. to seek mm-hmm. re-election. You have Kel Seliger up in Amarillo announced that he wasn't going. That's 75 years of political experience just with those three that are now out of the Texas Senate. That's right. a lot of, you know, knowing how to get things done, knowing the rules, knowing like the tricks of the trade, all of a sudden they're all out, you know? And so the, you know, it really is a, an interesting shakeup of some pretty influential people in the Texas, in, particularly in the Texas Senate who are yeah. now not there. It's like, who's going to, you know, fill those spots now in terms of intellectual type arguments, you know, and, and it's interesting. Cause you can, I almost, I wondered if Lucio was coming to a close. He mm-hmm. was like, very philosophical in some of his final speeches, you know, on the floor. Uh, You could just almost feel like he was like, I couldn't tell if he was just, you know, you know, being flowery because they'd been through so much this year or if it was because he was coming to an end. So to see that he announced his retirement, like, okay, now it makes more sense why he was going around the room and thanking all his great friends in the the, the Senate. I would say that, uh, and it's just uh, my my cynicism. I, I've never known Senator Lucio to not at least have a little bit more to say about whatever they're talking yeah. about. Um, <laughs> uh, he's uh, he's on his way. And look, this um, this will mark, I think, the first time since 1986 that there would be no Lucio in the Texas legislature. So yeah. it is a yeah. end of an era for South Texas. It's crazy to think he got elected to the legislature uh, when Ronald Reagan was in his second term. It's just mm-hmm. like it's just that's that's amazing to me. That's, a, yeah. that's some serious tenure. Speaking of South Texas, Governor Abbott and Republicans really want to open that up as their next big front in Texas, their war for a bigger majority in this state. And we mentioned the changes they made in Cameron County down in Brownsville as part of the redistricting process, that being challenged in court by the Mexican-American Legislative Caucus. And Abbott has been making these trips to South Texas. That his, his campaign and his folks like to brag about the idea that he's made more trips to South Texas than maybe any other governor. It's It's been a big priority for him to be down there talking to folks. He put out this promotional video on social media where it uh, features him, you know, he himself, he's talking about how important South Texas is and, and Brownsville and Cameron County in particular, and also featured some Republican activists down there. We are focused today on winning Republican elections in Cameron County. I support Governor Greg Abbott because I live in South Texas. I know that he knows the importance of having a strong border, protecting the unborn, keeping God in our schools, and uh, making sure that Texas never turns blue. Is this um, analogous to the way that people always ask the question, is Texas going to turn blue? There's sort of a tyranny of that narrative as if it's the only way you can talk about Texas. Will it turn blue? Every There's always a New York Times story, Washington Post, whatever else. I guess they do a nice job sort of parachuting in and talking about Texas for a week, but it's always, is it going to turn blue? And then it never does. Is the Valley sort of the mirror image of that where, where there's always this talk about how it's going to turn red. It's becoming more Republican. And then Jeremy, guess what? It never does. 
Yeah, well, oh, and and Valley has that added stereotype of you know you just hear that same thing of like oh it's a sleeping giant when they really register to vote wait till you see what happens you know it's just like and so there's a lot of you know, look the the truth of it is that they're definitely increasing voter registration uh, there's certainly been a lot of competitiveness uh, in pockets you know, uh, in some of those communities, uh, you know, is it to the point where it's like, it's legitimate to think that Cameron County is going to vote blue? No, you know, it's like, but you know, it's like, uh, Republicans have one Mm -hmm. thing, right. They need to get better numbers out there uh, in the more conservative parts or in the more rural areas of, you know, South Texas, uh, they need to get bigger numbers out of those places because those areas are growing. And, but when you look at other conservative parts around the state, like look in rural places up like in the Panhandle, northeast Texas, they're losing population. Mm-hmm. What they have in the in in the valley and areas around the valley uh, are potentially growing numbers, and they can you know kind of have more of a chance to you know offset what they're seeing the Democrats are doing in the urban areas. Right. Make no mistake, what's happening in the urban areas is traumatic. <laughs> you know, if you look at just voter registrations, to think you know, Houston's added a half a million people in eight years to the voter right. registration rolls. Mm-hmm. It's like, how do you balance that off? And so you can see Republicans going, okay, well, we got to find it in the Valley because there ain't mm-hmm. no place else to find it right now. We need more numbers. It's dramatic uh, and traumatic for Republicans when they start to look at that. And, and I think that, you know, in a lot of conversations I've had with some of the Republican minds in this state, there's sort of a consensus that the Republicans are speeding up and gaining ground in South Texas at about the same clip that the Democrats are speeding up and gaining ground in the suburban areas all around the state, in the urban and suburban areas. Democrats just coming on strong in Harris County, Fort Bend County, um, in uh, Williamson and Hayes County, in Denton County, in Collin County, even in Tarrant County, which had been one of the largest Republican urban counties in the United States, right next to Orange County in California, which then went to the Democrats more recently. Um, But I would say, and I could end up being wrong, but this is my observation, it seems like the uh, growth for the Democrats in the urban areas in suburban areas is more durable than what the growth has been for Republicans in South Texas. And the reason I say that is primarily because the uh, growth for Republicans in the Valley was so largely due to the influence and the environment created by President Trump's uh, either existence on the ballot or in the White House, where there are a lot of these um, sort of Tejano Democrats who, who these are pretty conservative folks. These are guys who drive around in pickup trucks with a gun rack. Do you think they're going to vote for uh, Trump or, or Clinton? Um, a lot of them had voted for Clinton, uh, you know, in the in the valley, the South Texas, you know, more broadly, um, the Clinton name was magic for a long time. Uh, but then you look at uh, Trump versus, uh, you know, Biden. And, you know, they had a lot of skepticism about Biden's uh, policies on the oil and gas industry, for example. They're reliant on a lot of uh, that for their jobs down there. Um, I, I don't know that you can take what happened with Trump in the valley and then extrapolate that for any given Republican going forward, the same thing 
is going to happen. I, I'm very skeptical of that, Jeremy. Yeah, and and you hit a key you know phrase there. It's just like you know uh, about the oil, you know, and the in the fracking world. And like you know, I, I've spent a lot of time down the valley, and you know. It, it, and you go to places like you know Frio uh, in Duval counties, you know which you know like you know they are not they're not huge counties, right? But you know remember what those are though. You know despite the fact that they're you know majority Hispanic communities, they're also cons- you know rural areas too, mm-hmm. and where people the best jobs in town are in the oil industry is in the fat fracking industry is like it's in places that like they're reliant on those things keeping going and what was trump doing you know when he was down the border you know uh, uh, not just him but also the republican national committee they spent a lot mm-hmm. of time focusing on your fracking jobs are going to go away you know good luck finding a better job uh and that played much better in the rural areas of you know, South Texas, just like it did everywhere. And just because they're Hispanic doesn't mean the that doesn't work. You know, it's just like, you right. know, there's a conflict there at times, of course, uh, you know, on demographics. But in this case, like where you live was more important than the demographics in some of those parts of South Texas. Yeah. And whatever. Um, and I've seen so many stories from the national media about and you know, very well written stuff about, you know, Trump's impact in South Texas and how it shifts everything going forward. You mentioned the RNC. You also have uh, the Associated Republicans of Texas, which is one of the big packs here, pro-business and pro-Republican uh, packs uh, in this state. You know, the one organization of the Republican groups that was not doing any work as far as anyone can tell in South Texas, the Trump campaign. Yeah. Right. So so don't overestimate, you know, what kind of work they were doing down there. One thing on the uh, congressional redistricting, I saw you had a story up about this new battle for a seat that is split basically between Austin and San Antonio and some interesting candidates lining up for that. And as I understood it, it could almost be a coin flip as to which city ends up with a congressman or congresswoman there. Yeah, it, it is really you know, it's pretty significant stuff, I think, particularly for San Antonio. Uh, you know, the heart of yeah. downtown San Antonio has been represented by Lloyd Doggett and Austinite uh, for the last 10 years or a little bit more over 10 years. Uh, and that, that's just strange. Right. You know, but so here, you know, Doggett's announced that he's going to move over to uh, a different congressional district that's more, you know, you know, in Travis County. And so that's opened up this district that, again, is all of downtown San Antonio or really the big hunk of it. You know, if you're in Hemisphere Plaza, you're in this congressional district that's wide open. Okay. But here's the thing. It's like, it had, you know, there's 300,000 people from Travis County in Austin, and there's 300,000 people from Bear County in San Antonio in this district. Mm-hmm. And the question is, you know, what's going to, how do you, how do you navigate that type of thing? And the thing that might help benefit the, the folks in, you know, Travis County is that this district also includes a big piece of Hayes County. You know, Hayes County is, you know, there's a lot of displaced Austinites who have moved south to find cheaper oh, yeah. housing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and so that could make that, you know, act more like Travis County in San Antonio. So it's, it's going to be a really interesting race, particularly on a Democratic primary, to see how this kind of all splits out. There's a lot of different factions here. Yeah, I think people who live in Hayes County, especially, and, you know, if you think about what the cities are there, the population centers, San Marcos, Kyle, Buda, especially in the last two that I named, those people think of themselves as living in suburban Austin, right? Exactly. They, they would never think of themselves as living in San Antonio. Yeah. 
right? And yeah. so you think and about be, who's, mm-hmm. and it's a little bit different when you get into the Braunfels and like folks mm-hmm. down there, yeah, you know, might gravitate more towards San Antonio, uh, right. but there's not enough of them in this district to throw off the balance that may be favoring Austin. But the thing mm-hmm. is, if, if you get a couple of big Austin candidates in this race, like it's starting to happen. Mm-hmm. That does open the door if there's one strong Democratic candidate from San Antonio that could kind of throw off that. You know, but, you know, somebody like Trey Martinez Fisher, who's been open about wanting to run mm-hmm. for the seat. If yeah. he's the only San Antonio uh, guy in the race, that could benefit him if the Austin district is split a couple of different ways. So TMF, Trey Martinez Fisher, interviewed me for his politics podcast yesterday. What a smart idea. And- I have a, yeah, no, he wants to get some of the number one politics podcast magic going on his deal. Um, and I do have a rule for being uh, interviewed by politicians. Cause it's interesting. This is something that has happened more in, in the last few years is politicians and office holders and candidates want to have their own media thing, yeah. right? They want to interview people. They want to talk. I have a rule, which is that's fine, but I get to ask you questions too, right? That's, is that fair? Yeah. It's the best I can do. I mean, I've also been interviewed by Alan West, for example. It's not partisan. I'll, just, I'll talk to anybody. Um, and we were going through the conversation. I asked him about this race because, as you said, he's been open about looking at uh, run, running for that. And during the redistricting process, you might remember that as the uh, congressional map was being passed in the Texas Senate, the chair of the redistricting committee, Joan Huffman from Houston, said that the district you're talking about, Jeremy, was was shifted a little bit to include Trey Martinez Fisher's house, quote, at his request. So I asked him that. Uh, He kind of gave me a funny look and said, well, look, I was flattered that she said that. That's not the amendment that I offered. But he said, hey, I'm taking a close look at it. We'll figure out how this is going to go. I think your point about the I-35 corridor and how that is going to perform and behave will be key in figuring out who wins this race. You also have uh, Greg Kassar, who I think earlier in the week when you wrote about this, he hadn't announced yet, and then he did yesterday or the day before. Um, And he's one of those liberal firebrands. I think no one would be, uh, you know, maybe more pleased to see Greg Kassar go to Congress than national Republicans because the state Republicans have had quite a time with him uh, in organizing around some of the things he's done on Austin City Council. Are we going to have a fourth special session? Governor Abbott was asked this again while he was in Midland earlier this week for a press conference to talk about something else. What was the big topic that all of these conservative activists want to see uh, there be a special session about? Well, there's a few things, but the main one seems to be vaccines. We've talked about this over and over. Right-wing activists including the anti-vaxxers, and I'm making a distinction because that's not all of them, but there are a lot of anti-vaxxers, and then there's the people who are anti-vaxxer and say that they are pro-vaccine choice. It's just interesting. None of them want to get a damn vaccine, right? At some point, you're anti-vax. You should just say that. Uh, Representative Brian Harrison, who says he's not anti-vaccine, he's a brand new state rep. He won his seat in a special election here just recently. He was on the Chad Hasty show in Lubbock. And Harrison said that Abbott needs to call a special session on vaccine mandates and banning those mandates right now. I'm extremely passionate about the issue, and I've got a really, you know, kind of interesting and unique perspective on it, having been the chief of staff of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services during the Trump administration uh, during the entirety of COVID and having been there from the very beginning Uh, With the vaccine program, which came to be known as Operation, you know, Warp Speed, Uh, I was actually one of only eight people in the room in the Pentagon 
in April at our first ever uh, high-level in-person meeting where we architected what, what became Operation Warp Speed. And, and from that very first meeting where we resolved to have vaccines safe and available uh, and in the arms of Americans in the same year, 2020, um, we also made it foundational that this was supposed to be a program that was not coercive, not by force. It was supposed to be we would have vaccines for as many uh, Americans who wanted it, but who wanted it by choice because we knew COVID was deadly. We know it's dangerous. I believe that it is. I believe the vaccine program has saved countless lives. But as bad and as dangerous and, and as deadly as COVID is, a loss of liberty and a loss of freedom is far worse. I understand that argument, but you know what really um, infringes on your liberty and freedom is dying from COVID. Uh, I think that part of part of this argument has to include the fact, and again, I respect his argument, that it, it has to include the fact that getting a vaccine is not just for you. It's for everyone else around you, right? The whole idea is to stop the spread, and that would apply to any vaccine. It would apply to polio, measles, mumps, rubella, the shots that we all got as kids when we had to go to school. It wasn't just about you and your children. It was about making sure that there wasn't an outbreak of any of that stuff amongst all the other kids at the school, right? And so if you think about who put this into motion, it was President Trump. As Harrison said, he was in the Trump administration. And I think it is a major missed opportunity by Trump, who, if he was worried about his legacy, would be telling people all the time, and promoting the fact that we wouldn't even have a vaccine if they hadn't done Operation Warp Speed to move it as quickly as possible. Could you imagine another time in human history, Jeremy, where a vaccine was produced that quickly for something that that was causing worldwide disruptions on everything? A, a Republican administration helped get us to where we were with the vaccine. The Democratic administration is trying to get those vaccines into people's arms. And you would think, if anything could be bipartisan. It would be this. But the answer on that is no. <laughs> Definitely a no. Big no. Yeah, Big no. And, and, and this whole debate this week, you know, it's like you know, this week we hit, you know, 70,000 deaths in the state of Texas uh, from COVID-19. And if you could go back and poll 70,000 people who died uh, about whether if they could do it all over again, if they would have gotten a vaccine, you know, it's just like how many who never even had the choice of getting a vaccine because it hadn't been developed yet would say, yeah, please. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, the, like you said, there's nothing more final than dead. You know, it's like yeah. there's 70,000 Texans who are gone. You know, it is have a hard time kind of, you know, putting that in perspective, you know, to how many people have you know been lost in such a short window. Right. Well, and with so many people who have lost their lives, it is remarkable that you do have Republican leadership that's so responsive to such a small group of people. Earlier in the year, you had uh, the Texas Republican Party promoting the fact that they had a petition to ask Governor Abbott to call another special session on this issue, on banning vaccine mandates. And at the time, I don't know that it's grown much more, but it was around 2,500 people who had signed the thing, which is I did the quick math. I think it's about 0.008% of 29 million people in Texas, right? It's not some giant groundswell of folks who say that you need to ban uh, vaccine mandates. And, and think about who we're talking about is, is putting the mandates in place. It's employers. Yeah. This is not a government mandate. It's employers. Republicans would have previously argued that it's a free market and the business should be able to do whatever they want to keep their employees and their customers safe. Um, and if an employee doesn't like it, guess what? 
what would they say on any other labor issue? Yeah. Go work somewhere else. Exactly. Right? This is a this, this is, is a right a, to work state, you, right? It, the employer in Texas, and I don't hear any of these conservative activists, including Harrison or anyone else arguing to change this. In Texas, the law is they can fire you for any reason or no reason, right? They just let you go. And whether I like it or not, that's the law. So if you don't get the vaccine, maybe we just let you go. We don't say why you didn't, you, know, you didn't continue to work here. Abbott does not want to talk about this, at least not in this way. The uh, attorney general of Texas is, here we are in court again, suing the United States, suing the Biden administration over its push to have employees vaccinated at big companies. Abbott was asked about whether he would have another special session while he was uh, in Midland, and he did not want to talk about that. He said, no, no, today we're here to talk about law enforcement and our efforts to crack down on what, Jeremy, you guessed it, the Texas-Mexico border. The, the real thing it took was uh, the $3 billion that we appropriated uh, to provide those resources. Now, part of those resources are, are is the razor wire that we're laying down. Part of the resources uh, are these big containers uh, that we're putting down that uh, pro create a barrier uh, that people cannot cross into the state of Texas. Uh, part of it is uh, the, the human law enforcement resources, whether it be Texas DPS or the National Guard who are authorized to enforce laws and arrest people in Texas uh, by having those human resources on the border itself. The goal is to make sure that people crossing the border don't even make it into communities like Midland County to begin with. So he wants to keep the focus on that, keep talking about the border and the fact that you do have uh, so many folks in the Republican Party who think that the border is wide open. Anybody can come in here. We're all under major threat. And as I have said before, Republicans are always mad about this issue. But, Jeremy, I have seen in the last couple of months evidence, and it's anecdotal. There's probably some polling somewhere if there's any quality polling in America. Uh, but there's probably some polling to back this up. The, just anecdotally, over the last six months, uh, I'm going I'm, I'm to say six months, maybe longer than that, the intensity on the vaccine issue is so much higher than it has been on the border uh, for Republican-based voters. I have seen uh, in conservative media the uh, news reports that people watch on Fox or listen to on certain radio stations. It says things like, the vaccine overlords want to force these shots on your children. It sounds like an Alex Jones broadcast all of this stuff does um they're so mad about the vaccines that i'm not sure you can get away with just saying oh hey look over here i'm talking about the border instead yeah yeah you can't even mention that people should get a vaccine now i always yeah. like to remind people like trump was booed for saying people should get a vaccine at a right. rally in alabama you know right. you're not saying you have to he just said you should get it and then they go boo <laughs> they started to boo when he said he got it exactly right exactly. where's the vaccine where's the vaccine choice for Donald Trump, shouldn't they cheer for him? And to underscore your point, I don't think I've ever seen one of his crowds boo him over anything else. Yeah. Ever? I mean, have, have any of us seen that? Um, let's do, I don't think we've done this in a little while here. Let's do a wellness check on Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Let's let's figure because I haven't heard from him in a little bit when, uh, when we're not in legislative session. Uh, he is, his power is reduced, would say that. But when we're in session, his power is at its height because he's presiding over the Texas Senate. But when we're not in session, 
which is one reason you would think that he's also pushing for another special session while Abbott is sort of, you know, trying to hold all that at arm's length. Um, Patrick would love to be back in there talking about vaccine mandates and transgender issues as well. There's another bill that some of these uh, activists want to be passed that has to do with gender modification. If I'm going to check on the lieutenant governor, where would I look? Mm. Oh, hang on. Hang on. I've, got my, I've got my television remote. I'm going to turn on uh, Fox News Channel. Did you see where the NAACP is telling young African-American athletes to not sign with professional teams in Texas. You see yep. that story? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I definitely saw that. There was a letter where they talked about a lot of different issues, including the elections law, the abortion bill, and some of the other things that have been right at the heart of the culture wars in America. Um, critical race theory is one of the things that gets brought up all the time as one of the things that's an organizing principle for Republicans, especially after their victory in uh, Virginia this week. Well, Patrick on Fox News Channel said that, you know what, the NAACP doesn't know what they're talking about. And with the lieutenant governor, and this is not me guessing this, it's always that he's looking at polls to figure out what he should be saying and what he should be arguing. The reason I don't have to guess it is because he says it, right? In every, just about every press conference, every interview, he will kind of sort of lay out his logical argument uh, and moral argument sometimes. But in this interview with Laura Ingram, he didn't even bother to do that. He just immediately said that the NAACP is wrong. And then I'll give him credit. He can spew all these percentages right off the top of his head. So it's a very misleading letter and it actually hurts these players that they say they're trying to help. Misleading for this reason, Laura, let them keep making it. It helps Republicans. First of all, on the election bill, 82% of Texans supported a third degree felony for vote harvesting. 79% supported adding the last four digits of your social security number to mail-in ballots to protect fraud in that. 59% agree with prohibiting drive-in voting or late-night voting. On the heartbeat bill that they talk about, 55% uh, of Texans support it, including 58% of Hispanics and 47% of blacks. And on the UIL bill about stopping boys from playing girls' sports, 58% of Texans support that and only 25% oppose it. So they're totally wrong on everything they said. How do you think he does that? Do you think he really can remember all those numbers or do you think he maybe has a note like a like a like a cue card off to the side there? I I don't know. It it is impressive. I can't do that. If I'm going to if I'm going to talk about that many numbers, I think you're a little better at remember some, remembering these numbers than I am. I'm not a numbers guy. I I can't do it. I can't remember all that. I can I can read it. <laughs> but man that is impressive. Patrick known civil rights advocate says that the NAACP is actually hurting black athletes. They want the black players to support Joe Biden, who will dramatically increase their their taxes on some of the highest paid black people in America. 74% of NFL players are black uh, or NBA players. 58% of NFL players are black and 8% of Major League Baseball players. If they live in California or New York, their total taxes are over 60 some percent. Tell a black player that you're going to sign that $10 million contract and only take 3.8 million home. In Texas, you keep most of your money. You don't get to keep as much of your money if you own a home 
in Texas, right? At Patrick and uh, one of his chief allies, um, Senator Paul Bettencourt from Houston, have for decades made it an organizing principle to talk about property taxes and how they are sky high in Texas. I always laugh about this idea that if you compare Texas to New Jersey or California or New York or any of these places, that we're somehow a low tax state. Go ask the Texas Association of Realtors and some of these other organizations that work with and represent homeowners and home buyers, they'll tell you there's a big burden for homeowners in this state. And I would think anybody who signs a $10 million contract probably is going to buy a nice house somewhere in, you know, in DFW or Houston. I'm not sure. Uh, but interesting, Jeremy, anytime we hear about these boycotts of Texas, this is sort of a, sort of a boycott, right? The NAACP saying, look, don't move to that place. It's terrible. And here are the reasons as they laid it out in their letter it's a mixed bag. Um, you know, we saw where there were different uh, sports organizations that didn't want to hold certain events in Texas or in Georgia, other places because of certain laws that had been passed. In some places, it is a little more effective because they're smaller markets. In Texas, we have more leverage on these things because you can't not do business in this state. Yeah. And, 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 and it's 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 a hard argument anyhow. So it's like you, you you know if a, if a sports team in Texas is offering you the most amount of money uh, right. for your family and to make sure you're going to be safe for generations, <laughs> uh, like you know that that would have said like remember when you know a Rod Alex Rodriguez signed with the Dallas uh, with the Texas Rangers. You know it's like oh, yeah. you know that you're saying no no don't come here. Don't bring us joy in our sports because <laughs> it's better. It's like, this is a hard pitch. I can't imagine like James Harden saying, no, no, I'm not, you know, not wanting to come to Houston uh, and play for all those years because the mm -hmm. NAACP said you shouldn't, you know? Right. Uh, yeah, just, I'm having a hard time, you know, seeing how that works. Thinking that that's going to work out. I mean, when, when, whenever the arguments were had before about different businesses that were not going to do, uh, you know, business to do commerce in Texas because of some various things that were being debated, the difference might be that some of those things did not actually become the law. So for example, there was a big push on this in 2017 having to do with Patrick's bathroom bill. Yeah. Remember that there were different businesses saying, you know what, if you pass that thing, we are not coming to Texas. Well, it didn't pass. So we don't get to find out whether it really happened, right? The problem is, as we sit here and talk about this, we're guessing, yep. right? There may be some athletes who say, you know what? I'm not going there. And it may not even necessarily be because the NAACP advised against it, but they may have listened to their argument and said, you know what? I would rather be in a different community. Yeah. And, and I remember early on in the transgender uh, you know, debate over the, the sports bill or whatever they want to call it here in Texas, oh, right. uh, the NAACP stood up and said, look, you know, we know, you know, we, we will take this into account when we're putting future championship games uh, around the nation. You know, Texas is hosting a lot of, you know, NCAA final fours and college football championship games. And there was a implied risk that Texas you know, could lose some of that stuff if we went too far with our, you know, transgender legislation. A transgender bill did pass, but it doesn't apply to university athletics. And that's a very key oh, yeah. point. You know, if mm -hmm. the NCAA isn't like, you know, kind of wagging a finger at us, I'm not mm -hmm. sure, you know, we don't, you know, drag this out to also include universities. Yeah. Well, and um, it will be a, a test, right? Because now these things are actually in effect. And that yep. goes for 
all the different issues that we're talking about because these things have moved into the courts, right? Of the, the elections, the abortion, and all of it. That I'm going to declare and not even ask you is enough show, all right? The, if you enjoy the show, you know you do. You've listened for about an hour. You should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you listen to your favorite podcasts. We don't uh, judge you on that. Give us the best rating that you can and uh, and leave a nice review. We appreciate it. Subscribe at quorumreport.com and houstonchronicle.com, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.